words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning, Resurrection. My name is Father Jonathan Warren Fagan. I'm one of the assisting clergy here at Res. And I want to greet all of you in the strong name of Jesus, the name above all names, the king above all kings this Sunday morning. And I want to remind you that that is who Jesus is on this first Sunday of Lent because we are being reminded right now that there are a lot of other kings who claim our loyalty. There's a lot of other fears that are clamoring for the attention of our hearts. And we want to say to those, in the strong name of Jesus, be silent. Jesus has not been caught off guard by anything that is happening in the world right now. Do you know that, brothers and sisters? I want you to remember this first Sunday of Lent that Paul reminds us to be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, to let your requests be made known to God. And when we do this, Paul says, the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in the Lord Jesus Christ. So, brothers and sisters, let's take St. Paul at his word this morning. I want to pause and I want to offer all of our anxieties and all of our concerns and every distraction that we're bringing in here this morning so that the peace of Christ may fill us so that our minds, our attention, our imagination, our hearts can all be trained upon this text. This is a text of power, brothers and sisters. So let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks and praise for the ability to gather and assemble in this place to be your body of Christ together. We pray that you would feed us with word and sacrament. Lord, we want to pray for the Ukrainians right now. We pray for your peace to come upon them. We pray, we pray for your power and your presence to come upon them. We pray that you would turn the hearts of their oppressors. We pray now in this space that you would give us hearts and minds and imaginations that are attentive. We pray for ears ready to hear and hands that are ready to do what you command us. We ask all of this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Now, Rez, I hope you're really excited to be here in Lent. Lent is my very, very favorite season of the church year. I know that's a little counterintuitive, maybe, but let me just tell you this. We are cutting out all of these things that have become supports and crutches for us during this year. And we're taking on practice that are, that practices that are going to help us turn to Christ and give ourselves to him again in repentance. And in all of this, we're saying, Jesus, we want you. Come and fill this gaping abyss inside of us with your presence, with your power. Renew us. Save us. Restore us. Make us new. We're turning to you again. Now, the author Philip Yancey, who was a big deal in the 90s when I was growing up, I, I just want to get a quick show of hands. Who here knows who Philip Yancey is? Okay, it's actually like more than I expected. I, I, I looked at a picture of him yesterday because I was like, what is this guy? I don't remember what this guy looks like. He looks exactly like Bob Ross. Like Happy Little Tree Guy. It's amazing. He's got the, the most beautiful white man afro I've ever seen. It's amazing. Anyway, all right. But Philip Yancey, big deal in the 90s when I was growing up. In his heyday, he would travel and speak across the world. And as he was reflecting on what he saw when he did this, he said this, As I travel, I have observed a pattern, a strange historical phenomenon of God moving geographically from the Middle East to Europe to North America and now to the developing world. My theory is this. God goes where he is wanted. Did you catch that? God goes where he is wanted. My friends, this is what Lent is about. 
We're saying to God, we don't want this stuff. We don't want alcohol. We don't want meat. We don't want chocolate. We don't want TV. We don't want social media or whatever else it is that you gave up this Lent. These things are all fine. They're all good parts of God's creation. They're meant to be enjoyed by his people. But we have, we have come to see that our need for these things has been too great. They've been too high in the mix of our desires. They've come to occupy, actually, the space that Jesus is meant to occupy in our lives. And so in Lent, we say, we don't want these things. We don't want experiences. We want you, Jesus. Without your presence, we shrivel up and die. Your church shrivels up and die. And so Lent is exciting because we're making a new start in our repentance. The 7th century Orthodox monk John Climacus says this, Repentance is the daughter of hope and the refusal to despair. I love that quote on so many levels, but I think this is the main reason for me. It makes clear that being comfortable and acquiesced to the status quo of this world is actually despair. That's not realism, that's despair. It makes it clear that being comfortable with the callousness of our own hearts and our own weak-willedness is despair. That's not realism, that's not self-affirmation, that's despair. These are the voices of atheism within us that tell us that Jesus is not really raised from the dead, that death and the devil haven't really been defeated, that the road is too hard and we're too weak and we're too tired to be roused to this incredible calling, this incredible honor that we've been given as the people of God. And if we're making a fresh start in our repentance together this Lent, this is because we are a people of hope. We have refused to despair. Jesus has been raised from the dead. Jesus has conquered death, Satan, and sin. Amen, brothers and sisters? Yes, yes. We've been given a calling, and we have been filled with the Spirit of Jesus so that we can glorify the Lord Jesus Christ in carrying out this calling. And so the part of us that doubts the greatness of that victory that Jesus has won in his resurrection from the dead... To that part of us, we say together with the great Catholic poet Gerard Manley Hopkins, let him Easter in us be a day spring to the dimness of us. If we are Christians, we do not believe that death and war and corruption and satanic oppression are the final words for this world or for any of us. And so in Lent, we are crying out to Jesus, we want you. Come and fill us. I don't know about you, brothers and sisters, but I find that to be extremely exciting. I find that to be the best of all possible news. I find that to be a great comfort and a great hope. So with that protracted introduction, I'm sorry, let's turn to our gospel reading today <laughs> in, Luke's, in Luke's gospel. All right, I'm going to give you a, all right, but, but for real though, I'm going to give you a heads up here. <laughs> I'm going to spend, like, almost the entire rest of my sermon on the very first clause of verse 1. Because, seriously, y'all, it's so rich, we could be unpacking it for months. Here it is. This is what it says, just a direct translation from the Greek. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit. Like, as I was meditating on this passage this week, as I was, like, trying to prepare for this sermon, I couldn't get past this. It just bowled me over. Luke, if you don't know, is the great theologian of the Holy Spirit in Scripture. Luke talks about the Spirit and the Spirit's agency more than any other gospel author. And among the gospel authors, only Luke uses this expression, full of the Holy Spirit. Here it is in Greek. Pleres pneumatas hagios. You want to say that with me? Pleres pneumatus 
Hagiu. What is Luke talking about with this expression? Luke is not talking about like an interior attitude, as if Jesus enters the wilderness ready to win friends and influence people. <laughs> right? What we ought to hear here instead is something more like a container that is brimming or full to overflowing. This is actually temple language. Luke is ripping this straight from the temple in Israel. Jesus is brimming with the Spirit. He's permeated with the Spirit. He's full to overflowing, just like God's Spirit filled the temple in 2 Chronicles 5. Go read that passage later. It is gorgeous, y'all. The, the Spirit's presence fills the temple like a cloud, and the, it's so heavy that the priest can't even stand up to minister. That's how Jesus is when he goes into the desert, y'all. That's how the Holy Spirit is coming upon Jesus and filling Jesus. Jesus is so completely engulfed by the presence of the Spirit of God that that presence spills out from Jesus in power and wisdom and discernment and resilience and healing. Don't you want that this morning? Isn't that what we're here for? What else are we gathering for unless that is what we want? So right now, I want to pause again. I want, to I want us to lift our hearts and our minds to heaven, and I want us to pray for this. So pray with me. Lord, we want to be full of your Holy Spirit, just as Jesus was when he entered the wilderness. We want you. We want to be full of your Spirit. We want to overflow into the pews here and out into our neighborhood streets. We want to overflow with your power and your wisdom and your discernment and your resilience and your healing. Our brothers and sisters, God wants you to have every good gift that Jesus has won for you in his tremendous victory over sin, death, and the devil, which is beginning here in this passage in Luke. He wants you to be permeated by his spirit right now so that you are no longer empty, so that you are full of faith, hope, and love to such a degree that you spill over with blessing and abundance on everyone around you. Now, how do I know that? How do I know that's what, Je that's what Jesus wants for you this morning? How can I say that with such assurance? I know that, actually, because of what Luke tells us about who Jesus is in this passage. You see, God created human beings in his image and likeness to rule and cultivate this earth, to have his spirit upon them, to be his ambassadors to the creation, to sing creation's the, the voice of, to be the voice of creation, singing God's praise and giving him glory. But humanity was seduced away from that vocation by the enemy of God, who had long since turned away from his own vocation to glorify God. No one has expressed Satan's post-fall condition better than John Milton. Milton has Satan say, I will not serve. Better to rule in the hell of my own creation, Lucifer says, than to serve in heaven. And so he seduces the jewel and the pinnacle of God's creation, human beings. Instead of being filled with the Spirit of God, human beings are now filled with what the Bible calls flesh. This word doesn't mean like you're in flesh bodies. It means it's talking about destructive desires and passions, especially the desires to possess what belongs to others and the lust to dominate others. That's what flesh means in the Bible. And so because human beings are filled with flesh, not spirit, there's a long, bloody, and sorrowful history filled with oceans of blood that ensues right down to the present day. But in the midst of all this chaos and decay, and waste, there's a spark of hope. God calls Abraham and Sarah to be a father and mother to a new people, a new humanity which will be a blessing to the nations. And although it takes 400 years, at long last we see this new people come into being. 
It is the mixed multitude of many ethnic groups that comes out of slavery in Egypt to be God's new humanity. That new people will eventually be called Israel. The deliverance from slavery in Egypt was itself a kind of resurrection to new life. And Israel was given this tremendous privilege of being in covenant with the creator God who would also redeem them. God was calling them to represent him to the nations around Israel by living as a redeemed people. God blesses them in every imaginable way. He even calls the people of Israel, my son. But this arc of the story ends in tragedy too, doesn't it? Because we can see immediately that Israel isn't going to be able to do it. They won't be able to keep their side of the covenant. They are locked in the same destructive patterns of flesh that the nations surrounding them are. And this is revealed right at the beginning through their failures in the wilderness. Just as soon as they accept the covenant with God at Sinai. And so history, Israel's history is again yet another sorrowful history of flesh driving out spirit. But failure is not the end of the story. It is never the end of the story for the God of life. Amen? Amen. And so in the midst of Israel, a new hope grows. And the men and women called the prophets that a representative will come. A servant of Israel, as the prophet Isaiah calls him, who will be the true son of God, who will have the spirit of the Lord upon him, who will at long last live by the spirit and not by the flesh, and who will do everything Israel was meant to do and to be the blessing to the nations that Israel was meant to be. And Luke is telling us this morning in no uncertain terms that Jesus is that servant. Jesus is the true representative of Israel, and therefore... He is the true representative of all humanity. By the way, this is the gospel. This is the gospel. Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit, and he enters the wilderness to be tested. Now, I want to be, I want to be clear. The NRSV that we just listened to this morning says tempted. And that's a possible translation of this word, but I think testing is better because of what is happening, what Luke says is happening in this passage. I think it's clear that how Luke is framing this incident in Jesus' life is a moment of testing, right? He's just, been, he's just been baptized, and the Holy Spirit has fallen upon him like a dove. He is brimming, right, with all of this blessing from God. And so he enters the wilderness, and he's going to undergo an ordeal that reenacts Israel's period of testing in the wilderness. Everything about this passage sets us up to understand that. The number 40... Why is it 40 days? Well, it's because Israel spent 40 years in the wilderness. Moses spent 40 days on top of Sinai. 40 is highly symbolically significant here. And during this wilderness sojourn, Israel was not tempted by God. Israel was tested by God. So that's the reason why I think this word, perazo, here should be translated tested. Because what Jesus is doing here is an exact parallel to the testing that Israel endured. But where Israel was tested and found wanting... Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, is tested and passes the test. Emerging from the waters of the Jordan and full of the Spirit, he goes out into the wilderness. And Satan is the agent of tempting here, or sorry, excuse me, of testing here, just as he was in the book of Job. Now, you'll remember your Job, right? Job is a righteous man. He does everything he is meant to do in terms of his religious obligations. He is righteous. And Satan says, he did that because you blessed him. Take away the blessing and watch him revile you to your face. That's exactly the position that we find Satan in here. Jesus, what is really inside of you? 
Sure, you're strong now and you're pious now when you're brimming with blessing from your baptism, but what will you do in the wilderness when all of your supports are gone? God, watch him revile you to your face. This period of fasting and testing lasts 40 days, and it culminates in these three final tests, which recall the test that Israel failed. And we shouldn't think that these are the only tests, right? Because the text tells us in verse 2 that for 40 days, he was tested by the devil. Rather, these are the final, most formidable tests. These are the tests that exactly parallel, parallel Israel's tests. Now, just stay calm, because I'm not going to go through all of them right now. We don't have time to do all of that. But listen, I want to encourage you later, return to this gospel passage and look up these three tests and look at the passages that Jesus quotes to Satan. He quotes, you've got a pen, you write this down. Deuteronomy 8, 2, and 3. Deuteronomy 6, 4. And Deuteronomy 6, 16. Now listen, my friends, I promise you that going deeper with this text will repay all of the study that you put into it. But I also want to give you this counsel. When you open this text to study it, don't go reading it like you would a novel. Don't dive right in. Pray for illumination before you read it, because that's actually an aspect of being filled with the Spirit, just as Jesus is. The same Spirit by which this, this text was written will illuminate your hearts and your minds so that you may understand it. That's how Christians are meant to read the Bible. As the third century theologian Origen said, what is most necessary for understanding the things of God is prayer. So if you don't know, in Deuteronomy, Israel stands at the edge of Jordan. They're about to enter the promised land. And Moses is reminding them of the law a second time. Hence the name of the book. It, the, the name Deuteronomy means second law. And as he does this, he's saying, you're about to enter into a season of abundance. You're going to eat. You're going to drink. You're going to have your fill. And then what? You're going to forget God. You're going to forget everything that God has done for you. So remember what God did for you in the Exodus and the wilderness, how he delivered you from slavery, how he sustained you with manna and quail, how he endured your constant grumbling and doubting. And in our gospel passage, Jesus is inserting himself into that story as the human being who says yes to God's invitation to trust, to place himself fully under the providence and the provision of God. And as he does this, what Jesus is doing is exhibiting and exercising true power. Satan thinks that true power looks like taking what you want, satisfying your every desire and craving, dominating and humiliating your enemies. Just look at the test that he puts before Jesus. That's what he thinks the Son of God will do when he has true power. This is false power, though. It's not too overstated to say that what Luke wants us to understand through this narrative is that wherever we see this way of thinking which is all too human. It dominates world history. Whenever we see it, it's demonic. Now let me ask you a question. Why do you think the Gospels tell us so much about the life and ministry of Jesus? They're mostly stories about his ministry, right? It's because it's not only Jesus' birth and his death which are significant for us. It's his life, his ministry, the way he was with people, the way he healed and blessed and prayed and cast out demons and resisted Satan's testing and temptations and made jokes and told stories and wept and rejoiced with people. All of that is significant for us. All of those represent victories for Jesus. Jesus' death on the cross 
is his ultimate victory over sin, death, and the devil. But that victory is the culmination of the many smaller and more everyday victories that he won over sin, death, and the devil through his life. Those are victories that he won for us. That we can also inhabit those same postures that Jesus brings to the table and shows us how to live. He won that victory for us. He gave us that grace that we could also look like that in our lives. His victory is not just over death. His victory is not just so that we can go to heaven when we die. It's so that right now, today, we can exercise true power like Jesus does. That our lives could look like Jesus' life would look if he were living in our culture, in our family system, in our jobs, speaking our language. I can't tell you what all that looks like for you, but I can tell you how it will happen. It will happen as you're filled with the Spirit, just as Jesus is filled with the Spirit. And as that Spirit is forming Christ in you, so that you can live that way. Now, Jesus was uniquely the Son of God, but he, but he, and he does what we cannot do here in this confrontation with Satan. He wins that victory on our behalf. But guess what, friends? You are the children of God, too. Because of the victory in Jesus' saving incarnation, life, death, and resurrection. St. Paul tells us that he did all of this precisely to bring many sons and daughters to glory. That we could be God's children, God's family. So brothers and sisters, if you are baptized, you are the family of God. The Spirit of God is in you too. And so therefore you can be filled with the Spirit. You can embrace true power. You can cast Satan down and humiliate him, just like Jesus does here. You too can reject his false vision of power. You too can trample Satan under your feet in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen? Friends, it is as we are filled with the Spirit, just as Jesus is filled with the Spirit here, that we can be liberated from the tyranny of the flesh and live by the Spirit. Jesus has already won this victory for us in his incandescent life and his victory in all of these ways and especially on the cross. This is our inheritance to claim as his brothers and sisters. My friends, you have incredible dignity because you belong to God's family. You have this inheritance. And so brothers and sisters, children of God, this Lent, I want you to join me in praying to be filled with the Spirit just like Jesus is filled with the Spirit. Say to Jesus, we want you. Teach us to hunger and thirst for you. Save us. Redeem us. Restore us. And pray for the Spirit, and don't let go until he blesses you with that, until you overflow with goodness and mercy, until it spills out from our homes and into the neighborhood streets. In the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's take a moment of silence and pray that the Spirit would fill us in this place. You're listening to Resurrection South Austin, a community of faith learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at resaustin.com.